humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950. Talking to you from the bunker in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. I am thrilled to be back talking to you. I am thrilled to be here. Last week it was sort of a bye. Too much going on. Um, too many conflicts. But I'm here back giving you a show. I, and um, and it's a good show. Uh, actually, I think it might be a great show um, because, you know, we talk about idealism and idealists here. And, uh, and we have just something that I think that you're going to really, really love. The big interview is with uh, an actor, Dean Holt, who is with the Children's Theater Company. He's been with the Children's Theater Company almost 30 years. And he's here to talk about a groundbreaking play, Something Happened in Our Town that is currently running at the Children's Theater Company in Minneapolis, running through March 27th. You will love this interview with Dean. And by all means, please go see the play. And of course, in my C block, I'm going to share about my work as a hopeless idealist. But let us begin with this week's featured idealist. And, it, and it's a name that uh, within the last month you have started to uh, become familiar with. I'm, I'm speaking of no, none other than Katanji Brown-Jackson, whom President Joe uh, has nominated to replace Justice Stephen Breyer on the United States Supreme Court. Some of what follows is from the SCOTUS blog and a February 1 piece by Amy Howe. I suspect that for many of you, just as was the case for myself, you had no idea of who Katanji uh, 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 Brown Jackson was uh, or is until she was nominated late last month. So here is the 211 on this wonderful idealist. And I will refer to her as Judge Jackson, okay, because she is presently um, on the Washington, D.C. Court of Appeals. So she's a judge. We're going to call her Judge Jackson. It's easier for me to do. We start with Judge uh, Jackson by talking about her parents, both of whom attended segregated schools and who then went on to t attend historically black colleges. I tell you this because it demonstrates the power of education, the great leveler. You're going to see this as I go on. Both of Judge Jackson's parents worked as teachers in Washington, D.C. when she was born. The family then moved to, to Florida, where Judge Jackson's father, Johnny Brown, enrolled in law school at the University of Florida. Her mother, um, Ellery Brown, continued her career as an educator, and eventually she became principal of a public arts magnet school in the Miami-Dade County School District. Uh, Judge Jackson's father, Johnny, eventually graduated from law school and became legal counsel for the Miami-Dade County School District. So you got two parents involved with education in one way or another. And as you may have heard after... Uh, President Joe announced Judge uh, Jackson as his Supreme Court pick in a White House ceremony. Judge Jackson spoke of how her interest in the law began when her father would study for law school with his law books stacked up at the kitchen table of the family's apartment in, uh, in Florida. Judge Jackson then in preschool would have her coloring books stacked too. As she said, when I, when, uh, as she said, quote, when I think back on these times, there really is no question that my love for the law began in that formative period. Eventually, Judge Jackson would graduate from Mi Miami Palmetto Senior High School, where she was the class president in 1988. While at that school, Judge Jackson told her high school guidance counselor that she wanted to attend Harvard University. 
And as we've heard so many times before, we've heard it on this show from another, from a guest that we had, and I'm, kill, I'm scratching my brain about who it was, but this person talked about it. Um, when Judge Jackson told her high school uh, guidance counselor that she wanted to go to Harvard, the guidance counselor replied by warning her not to set her sights too high. Uh-huh. Where do you want to guess that uh, that counselor uh, was white? Well, Judge Jackson did go to Harvard. <laughs> she sure did, where she graduated in 1992, magna cum laude. Then, after spending a year as a reporter and researcher for Time Magazine in New York City, Judge Brown went. Excuse me, Judge Jackson went back. Uh, went back to school. She went to Harvard Law School at that point. And after serving as an editor of the Law Review, she graduated in uh, 1996. From there, Judge Jackson became a law clerk for Stephen Breyer. However, before she went to clerk for Judge Breyer, she clerked for two federal judges in the Boston area. My old stomping grounds back from law school and when I learned how to be a trial lawyer. And then she worked in private practice, okay? In 1999, she got out of private practice and then she had the opportunity to clerk for Justice Breyer. She took that opportunity and she was a clerk with Justice Breyer for a couple of years. In, in 2005, after her stint with uh, Justice Breyer, and by the way, everyone, to become a, a clerk for a Supreme Court justice is about the highest honor that anybody could ever hope for, other than becoming a Supreme Court justice itself. In 2005, Justice Jackson became a, fub, a federal public defender in Washington, D.C. And about that experience, she would later say that there was a direct line between her work as a public defender and her then becoming a trial judge and then later on a, uh, um, a, um, an appellate court judge. She quickly came to understand uh, that the defendants she was representing as a public defender often had no clue about how the legal process worked. As a result, she made sure that her clients understood was what was happening and why. And if you know anything about public defenders, they are tremendously overworked. It would really take much extra effort to give each person, each defendant their due. And it appears that Judge uh, Jackson did exactly that. And this is what she said, quote, I think that it's really important for our entire justice system, that is to get people to know what was going on, to be, give them the time, because it's, the, it's only if people understand what they've done, why it's wrong, and what will happen to them if they do it again, that we can really start to rehabilitate, unquote. She understands you've got to give people time, compassion, even the most, the, the folks who have broken the law, give them an opportunity to see what their wrong was. In 2010, President Obama nominated Judge Jackson to serve on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, um, where, where she and others worked to undo the strict, harsh uh, sentencing rules from the war of drugs, war on drugs of the 1990s. Two years later, okay, in 2012, President Obama nominated Judge Jackson to become a U.S. District Judge in D.C. She was confirmed by Senate voice vote and served seven years on the trial bench. Notable from that tenure, in a case brought by the House Judiciary uh, Committee, this would be after President Joe was elected, she ruled that former White House counsel Don McGahn 
had to testify before the committee. She's the one who wrote um, in a 118-page opinion, quote, presidents are not kings, unquote. She wrote that in that opinion. Now you're remembering who she is? Now you're, you're am I just connecting a dot for you about who, uh, who J- Katanji Brown-Jackson is? Okay. In June of last year, so she, you know, been on the bench as a trial judge for seven years. In June of last year, President Joe nominated her to the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is, as Court of Appeals go, okay, the most prominent in the country. Um, and Judge Brown was confirmed. At, so this was just last year, okay, uh, in, in the summer of last year, was confirmed by a vote of 53 to 44. Three Republicans, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, joined with 50 Democrats to confirm her to the D.C. Court of Appeals. And now she's back. Judge Jackson is back for appointment to the top court of the land. (laughs) Hearings will begin March 21st. For her personal life, Judge Jackson met her husband, Patrick, while at Harvard. He's now a surgeon at Georgetown Georgetown University Hospital in D.C. And they have two daughters, one in high school and the other is in college. And then let me end on a twist. It turns out... (laughs) The Judge Jackson's husband, Patrick, is a twin. That twin, his name is William Jackson, is married, drum roll please, to the sister of Paul Ryan, who at one time, as you may recall, that name Paul Ryan, from Pennsylvania, no, he's from Wisconsin, at one time Paul Ryan was the Republican Speaker of the House. So get that. Our hopeful next Supreme Court Justice Um, is related by marriage to Paul Ryan. And Paul Ryan said that while their politics may differ, his praise for Judge Jackson's intellect, character, and integrity is unequivocal. Listeners, we're all connected in far more ways than what we believe. And with luck... We will soon have a Supreme Court justice and idealist. Someone who early on said, I'm going to be a lawyer. Someone who had a storied career, but then took a departure to become a federal public defender to represent the least of us and who came to understand how the system is rigged. She's going to make a phenomenal Supreme Court justice. And I look forward to her helping to make our country more fair, more compassionate, and better. Okay, there you go. All right, well, that's our featured idealist for the week. Um, Katanji Brown-Jackson, read up on her. Stay tuned. Uh, the, the, uh, the confirmation hearings begin on March 24th. So, All right, we'll be back in a second with the big interview. You will love the big interview. I loved it. Thanks. I want to hold the hat. 
And we're back on AM 950 LD 2.0 radio. So um, keep your eye on what, what goes on with the, uh, you know, Senate hearings about Katanji um, Brown Jackson. And uh, let's see what happens. Let's keep our fingers crossed that We've got, a, we've got us a new Supreme Court justice come uh, early or to mid-April. Okay, now this is time, if you regularly follow the show, you know this is the time for the big interview. And I am thrilled, thrilled to have on the show um, Dean Holt, who is an actor um, with Children's Theatre Company. And he is, he is a wonderful, wonderful uh, actor generally, but he has a wonderful character in a new play, a very, very important play titled Something Helpin', excuse me, Something Happened in Our Town. Dean Holt, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm wonderful. Thanks. Oh, well, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. Now, Dean, uh, we've got to lay a little bit of the uh, the groundwork for the audience to understand this play, Something Happened in Our Town. Um, uh, it's based on a book, right, uh, that came out in 2018 by the same title, Something Happened in Our Town, and that book was written by Marianne Solano, Marietta Collins, and Anne Hazard, and then illustrated by Jennifer Zivron. Um, it's a child's book, right? That's correct, yeah. And it's a very quick read. It's, it's you know, less than five minutes you read the story, and it's, it's geared primarily for ages four to eight as far as the storybook. And so our challenge was to take that and develop it into a piece of theater that would, you know, tell a story and also last longer than five minutes. So um, uh, we sort of expanded that with the help of our wonderful playwright, Cheryl West, to uh, deepen the characters, deepen the storytelling, and make true connections as to what is happening in our world today. Right. And you're, and the producer, or excuse me, the director of the play is Timothy Douglas. Um, and, uh, and Dean, can you give us... You know, tell us what, what is, you know, Something Happened to Our Town about. And, and it's playing, oh, we should make sure everybody understands. It's playing at Children's Theater Company right now as we, well, not literally as we speak because you're in the play, but it's playing at, at the Children's Theater Company in, in Minneapolis. It's, it's going to be running until uh, through March 27th. So give us a, oh, oh, Dean, we got to make sure we tell the audience this, okay? Hold on. Uh, audience, uh, you know me. I tell you things when you need to hear them. And so I am a new member to the Children's Theater Company board, just so you know that. But I just got to tell you, even if I wasn't on the board, I'd be having Dean on this show. We'd be talking about this book because it is such an important play. Okay, go ahead, Dean. What's the, what's, give us the sense of what the play is about. Yes, yeah, so uh, the, the story focuses around a police-involved shooting uh, of, a, of a black man, um, and we don't see that on stage. That It's not the officer that I play in the show who, uh, who is responsible for the shooting, but it is something that happens in the town, and uh, we quickly see how uh, different households, how the children, how um, the, the school teacher, how they all take that information and try and process that. And so, you know, the show basically centers around that as far as when the shooting happens, how that impacts each family, um, how it changes perceptions, how it strengthens relationships, challenges relationships, um, and uh, tries to give an overall perspective on each family and each uh, unique perspective that, that is within that story. 
um, without trying to take a side or take an angle. It just tries to present things. And the whole purpose of it is to create space for conversation, because that is the ultimate goal, is to talk about and to give a, a, forum, a forum for kids to ask questions and parents to have a resource to say, that's a great question. Let's talk about that. What do you think? What do you feel? And uh, allow that interchange to happen versus shying away from topics versus trying to superimpose our viewpoints on kids. You know, kids are very smart and have their own viewpoints. So that's the goal of the show. That's the basic story of the show. Sure. And the characters. So we've got a number of different characters in the play. Um, there, there are, so when, when the, when the play opens, we've got on the stage, you know, the set is essentially two households that are next to each other. Um, one has one household um, occupied by <coughs> a, a white family with a and and with a a grade school girl named um, named uh, Emma uh, on the one side, and then uh, on the other side of the of the stage, um, a, a family, a black uh, African American family with a boy named Josh, and the two of them, Emma and Josh, are friends, right? They they at it. it, it lends you to believe that they had been best friends. They had become best friends. Am I right about this? That's right. Josh's family has recently moved into this neighborhood, and it's uh, been there a few months, and he and Emma, because their neighbors have formed a relationship, formed a, a best friendship, if you will. Emma has is one that has uh, difficulty making friends, and so having a yep. new neighbor, having a new friend is a big deal in her world. And Josh is yep. kind of a nerd. You know, he's kind of a nerdy kid, well, right? Yeah, 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 trying to figure out how he fits in as well. So Yep, a nerdy, sensitive, very sensitive kid. Okay, and now you, Dean, okay, you're, you are your Uncle Manny, right? And by the way, you really do yep. look like a Manny. I just want you to know that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but you're also a police officer in the play, right? That, yep, that's right. And so I play Emma's uncle, and, you know, for the purposes of the show, it was very intentional that the very first scene that I enter into with Emma and Josh out there, I'm in my street clothes. It's a day off from work, and so I come out, and, you know, a lot of this was intentional just because yep. it is such a charged atmosphere as far as reacting to uniforms and to policing and whatnot. So we wanted to sort of gently ease our way into the waters of telling the story and giving just uh, a setup of to who these people are and how they relate to one another without uh, putting on too much, too many more layers than, than were necessary to get that started. Well, and, and, but, but you are, you are pretty central to the play because you're on the one hand, you are um, the, the father figure for Emma. Is that right? Cause we don't in the play see a father. Um, right. There's throughout. no father figure for Emma. So it's my sister, uh, played by Autumn Ness, uh, who's Emma's mom. And then uh, I'm a, a major figure in, in Emma's life as far as daily phone calls to check in. You know, she's yep. having me come to career day to talk to the kids about being a police officer. She's very proud of our of me being a police officer. Right. And then uh, when the shooting happens, you know, that that changes, like I say, everyone's perspective. And so the relationship, the viewpoint that Emma has regarding Manny, that, that suddenly starts to slip and shift and slide too. And so it's, um, you know, there's a lot of navigating that we do in the play, um, which is really interesting. And <laughs> yeah. You very know what? true to life. And well, and I, Dean, I've got to tell you, the play is very emotional. I'm, I'm actually getting emotional right now. Sorry. Um, uh-huh. thinking yeah. about some of the things. Okay. Because you, you, you know, the, the 
the you also develop a relationship with Josh. I mean, so you know the nerdy yep. black kid. You you you've got a secret handshake with him, and you know you have a relationship with him. And uh, and he has in the play he has an older brother, right, Marcus. Mm-hmm. Yep. Marcus is a teenager. Malcolm. Oh, excuse me, Malcolm. Sorry. Malcolm. And Malcolm yep. is yep. a, he's a teenager. He's, you know, he understands the way the, the way the world works, you know, um, as it relates to white and black and stereotypes and all of that stuff. And, 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 and so the, the shooting happens, you're not involved with it, but then after the shooting occurs, we hear about it. And then you show up in the, in the play in your uniform. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Okay. And then we, we, you know, we have the parents of um, Malcolm and Josh. We have the parents who are trying to struggle with how to, ra- first of all, raise and keep safe two black boys. But, but Josh is so in- innocent. He doesn't understand the way that the, the, the way the world has at least been working historically. Not, and that's a wrong phrase because it hasn't been working very well, particularly if you don't have white skin. Um, right. But okay, well, listen, uh, we've got to take a break. I'm sorry, Dean, okay? And then we're going to come back and talk more about the play. Listeners, I've been speaking with Dean Holt. He is a member of the Child Children's Theater Company's acting company since 1994. He's been, he's been with the company. He's appeared in more than 100 productions. Uh, he is a two-time Ivy Award winner and a recipient of the Alumni Achievement Award from St. John's University for outstanding work in his field. When we come back, we'll talk more with Dean Holt. Um, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Thanks. And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio <laughs> on lovely AM 950. I've been speaking. This is a big interview, everyone. You may recall. I've been speaking with um, Dean Holt. He is an actor with the Children's Theater Company, a longtime actor going back to 1994. He plays Uncle Manny in the new play um, that's presently running at Children's Theater Company. The play is Something Happened in Our Town. Uh, generally, the play involves a police-involved shooting, and it explores how relationships um, of a black kid and a white kid change or get challenged by that shooting, as well as their families. Dean, before we took our break, okay, um, you, we started talking about you know um, uh, your role as a police officer in this play. You're not only Uncle Manny, but you're also Officer Manny. I, maybe I, you're a sergeant, aren't you? In the in the police department, I don't remember, but. Um, we don't actually uh, describe what, what rank describe I am. Describe the but, rank. Okay. Uh, yep. Okay. Well, let me tell you, you hold yourself like at least a sergeant. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. All right. Now, but, you know, but, but your, your role is pivotal because there's involved police involved shooting. You're not in the play. It's clear you weren't involved in the shooting. You know how it happened or you know what it was. It's the shooting is called a mistake. It's the shooting of a black, a black person. Okay, by a police officer. It's called a mistake. Okay, but you know you've got the black family saying, you know, uh, that's what's always said, and you know, and and then you know the 
teenager, Malcolm, saying, well, he wouldn't have even been stopped if he was white, so there would never even been a shooting, those kinds of things. And these are, Dean, these are the things that we have been hearing, particularly since George Floyd, particularly since what, you know, uh, Philando Castile going back to 2016. Tell me this, Dean, for you to play a police officer, what did you have to do? How did you, how did you study for the role? And what, um, what kind of um, advice and what did you learn about the role of police of policing, right, right. Um, you know, there were a lot of conversations, a lot of questioning, a lot of uh, reading and research on my own, and then we uh, also had the opportunity to have a retired police officer uh, from Cottage Grove uh, speak both with the director, uh, with our artistic director, and with myself individually, um, just to allow uh, again a chance for exchange. To, I, I really was curious to see what his experience was in the past few years with. Uh, George Floyd's uh, murder and and sort of the way policing really was put under a microscope. And it was a fascinating conversation. Um, you know, things that I already uh, thought or felt were reinforced. And then there were things in our conversation that made me step back and say, oh, yeah, I, I guess that's a great way of looking at it. And um, not, to get, not to get into specifics with that, but it's what I loved about my conversation with the police officer was in our performances now, we, after every performance with a public show, we do a community conversation. And we very quickly had uh, an audience member raise their hand and um, based on watching my performance say, you know, I really appreciate the way you handled the police officer. It just gave me a lot to think about and I hadn't allowed myself to think about it that way or to mm. think about that perspective. Right. And I think that's the goal of the show is to create conversation, not not to uh, get defensive on one side or the other, but to just say, hey, let's just talk. Let's talk as humans, you know, and that is a beautiful thing if we can allow it to happen. But well, this process was like no other process I've been through as far as the relevance and the timeliness and the reality. Anytime you turn on the television, you know, during our, our rehearsal process, Amir Locke was killed. And so the way yep. that changed our whole rehearsal room and the time spent unpacking all of that was, uh, it, it was... <laughs> Quite a, quite a journey we went through. Well, and it is a journey. And, and the audience is taken on a journey from the beginning of the play to the end, right? I mean, the, yeah, audi- the yeah. audience is challenged about stereotypes. The audience is challenged about um, tr- trying to understand different perspectives. So in the play, I mean, we, should, I, we don't want to give the whole thing away, but in the play, um, Josh's older brother, Malcolm, goes out and protests mm-hmm. and in the, yes. and, and then there's some disturbances. The protest occurs and, and, uh, um, Malcolm's parents aren't happy that he took, you know, he, he kind of took off in the dead of the night to do that after being forbade yeah. against that by his father. But, but, but then you bring Malcolm back home to his parents. Yep. You don't arrest Malcolm. And then you have this discussion in the kitchen with the, with the parents, Malcolm and Josh's yeah. parents, about what happened and about, about the stereotypes, right? And about what has been going on in America. Yes, and it's, you know, what I love about that moment is when I bring Malcolm home, uh, I, I bring him to his doorstep and the parents, uh, you know, I, I say that I, I believe this one is yours and he goes into the house and there's a moment that I have with Kevin who plays... Uh, the father of the Perkins household, and, and we look at each other in the eye, and there's a lot that ex- is exchanged in just that look. 
Yep. But the moment there is me saying, hey, do you mind if I come in? And it's, it's again, it's, it's taking the opportunity to talk about what happened versus just dropping him off and leaving. I say, can I come in? Let's talk about this. And then that's where discussion happens. And it doesn't go as we expect or maybe want it to go, but uh, there's things that come up. And, and the challenge with this is I am the only person in the show playing a police officer. We don't have, you know, three or four policemen. Right. We have me. And so I get to serve both as fun Uncle Manny and a, a good police officer, but there's a certain amount that we want to represent truth, truthful to our reality as far as what is happening in policing. And so the things we discuss around that kitchen table in that moment are difficult words to say out of my mouth, but it's things that are necessary in order to further this conversation. Right. Well, Dean, I'm going to go one further with you, okay? Because okay. it's also about taking risks. When you asked to come into the house, you had to take a risk. You were taking a risk of being rejected, right? And as yep. they sat with you, they took a risk. The, the, you know, the parents, they took a risk that, that maybe they'd be judged for having you in the house. They took a risk that maybe you would say something that, that made them feel bad or uncomfortable or that they took a risk that there might be an argument, you know? And, and as the play goes on, there are other risks, there's other risk taking that, that occurs. You remember when Josh, there's a new boy that comes to the school and, and, and Josh and Emma, they have to take a risk to, to, to be outgoing to him because it was going against yep. the code of the other students to do that. And so, and the reason I bring this up is my audience members will <laughs> recount that I talk a lot about fear because underlying all this in the play is fear, right? But also about how we need to overcome our fears, you know, and take risks to go forward. So, you know, so tell me, uh, and tell me, um, how how have you, been, you know, after every play, there's you know, there's a discussion with community members, and and when I was there on Friday night, there was a wonderful discussion. We had the, we actually had the children book authors there, and we had it was a half hour of discussion. Many questions coming from young children, which were way better than anybody else was asking oh, I questions. Know. Yes, yes. <laughs> Tell me, I mean, what? Give me a sense of how you're feeling about this play, and. How you think that maybe it's changing things? Ah, uh, you know, we're about a week into the run now, and and I will say, you know, the the further we get away from opening, the the more we are knowing the story, are confident in our storytelling, and so um, those relationships, those those conversations, in my mind, are deepening. Uh, the uh, the ability to listen and take in moments in other scenes that you before weren't able to because you were so focused on getting your stuff correct, you know, you're able to take that in. Right. And so the whole journey has a different experience now and a different sort of effect on you. And uh, again, because this is such a real <laughs> discussion we're having yep. with this story, it's uh, there's a certain amount of that that comes home with you. And so my brain is always sort of uh, clicking away at what happened and what's going to happen the next performance, what I'd like to work on, moments that I'm aware of yep. and moments that I want to lean into. And it's been fascinating, and the best part has been these community conversations. And it's, you know, while it's great to have adult viewpoints and questions, the best thing has been the voices of the children in the audience oh raising gosh. their hands and out of a little four to six year old's voice, hearing the question of why are black people being killed? Is this still happening? You know, and those are real questions. And it's exactly yep. the reason the book was written is because these real questions exist, and we uh, don't always allow them to be asked. And I think. 
as uncomfortable and, and disconcerting mm-hmm. as that is, it's important because this is the world we live in. It's our opportunity to make change, to affect change, to grow, to learn. Well, and I would say generally as, you know, I'm like crystal brand new to the board for Children's Theater Company, but the reason I'm agreed to be on the board is that this is this play is one of many things that the theater company is doing to try and push the conversations that we need to have about positive change in in our world, in our community, and in our world. And and uh, it's just, I mean, I I'm I'm so thrilled that you are a part of this, Dean. Let me ask you. Um, I always ask my guests, um, "Are you an idealist?" and 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 if not, what is your answer to that question? So I looked at, at, at our definition of idealist, and I guess my, my response is I am one who is constantly working to improve, not only myself, but the world around me as far as in the rehearsal room, in our, in our mm. theater company, mm-hmm. um, in my own life with my family and my kids. You know, I, I always think there's something else to be worked on. There's another goal. There's a higher uh, rung in the ladder to be reached. And so what I love to do is with the kids in the show is really try and foster that mentoring as far mm. as like, um, here we are as storytellers, and this is a wonderful gift we have. And so how do we make that fresh every day? How do we further that story? How do we make it impact people so much that they go out into the community and talk about it with their friends, with their family, and especially with this show, because it's the purpose of it is to sort of spur that conversation. It's, it's especially yeah. important that we um, mentor these kids and give them resources to grow and to learn and to observe what they're doing and, and wrestle with some of those things we talk about and we've had a wonderful rehearsal room to be able to do that, a, a great sense of support and community, and, you know, we just keep building on that. So, yes, I, I think in the truest sense, I am an idealist in the hope that uh, we keep striving uh, toward a better a better world, a better world, a better, um, yeah, I, I, I think so. Okay, well, <laughs> that sounds to me like the definition of an idealist. So, so Dean, um, before we go, okay, a couple of things. First of all, let's uh, remind the audience how can they find out about the play and and when is it when is it running till and and uh, what can they do to to go see it? Because audience members, and you know, I I don't ever recommend things that I don't believe in. You got to go see this play. I'm just telling you. Go ahead. Tell us how they can do that, Dean. So uh, our website is childrenstheater.org. Uh, you can purchase tickets there, learn more about the play. There's a lot of resources there to look at. Um, uh, the Children's Theater's uh, ticket office is uh, 612-874-0400. Um, and when is the play running? Is it running every day? Are there so, mat- And there are matinees? And give us that. We we have uh, matinees on the weekends, both Saturday and Sunday. We have evening performances, uh, usually every Thursday and Friday for sure. Uh, a couple of, uh, additional ones without my calendar right here, I can't yep. say for sure, but it's on the theater's website. We go through March 27th, and I really encourage folks to get there and uh, check it out because it is, it's great for all of us to have a space to sit and, and reflect on what's been happening, and it's a safe space. Theater's always been a safe space, yep. but it's a place where we all come together and can experience in the same air and the same breath what is happening, and then talk about it. Well, and, and before you go, we also need to make sure that everyone understands there's a book titled Something Happened in Our Town. That is what this play is based on. This book is, it's not even, a, it's, I, I think, a thousand and one words, right? It's a picture book. As you said, it's a, it's a quick read. But the book, at the end of the book, has like a parent guide, right? 
to talk oh, about yep, yep. how do you talk to your children about prejudice and discrimination and what's going on in America, how to have those conversations. It's a phenomenal book, right? Yes, it's a great resource, and it's, you know, the, there's question and answer prompts, there are definitions, there are resources as far as learning more about uh, racial injustice or policing, um, you know, great resource for any family that's trying to have the conversation and doesn't know where to begin. It, it's, it sort of lays it right out for you as far as like, okay, here's some great steps we can take. And last week when I was there, I asked the authors, has the book ever been banned? And they started laughing because they, they replied, they replied that the book is within its number six on the most banned books in America. Can you believe that, Isn't, Dean? Can you that believe shocking? that? I know. I know. So for all yep. the work that you and your cast colleagues are doing and, and the company is doing, for all of that work in other parts of our country, people, people don't even want the book read. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, my friend, you have been a wonderful guest. I have been, I could, Dean, I just want you to know I'm a huge fan of you. All right. Of your work, of your, I am. Okay. I could talk to you for an hour. I'm positive of that. But thank you for being on LE 2.0 radio. I am so grateful for you. I'm grateful for your company um, and your cast, you know, your cast colleagues and other actors. Will you let them know, I mean, for what it is worth, that I believe all of you have really just knocked it out of the park, okay? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on uh, the show, Ellie. Or excuse me, Dean. All right, everyone, this is Ellie. Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. When we come back from our break, I'll do the C Block, talk about my work as an idealist. And thank you, Dean Holt, for being here. And she was lying in the grass And she could hear the highway And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio. Um, Dean Holt, go see that play, please. You will love him as Officer Manny, Uncle Manny, but you will love the play. And all the messages that come out of it. I just, it is an idealistic play created by, <laughs> the book was written by three psychologists at Emory University. Um, they were not in the book writing, it was their very first book. They were not in the book writing business. And then the book took off. There's a sticker on the book that says New York Times bestseller, number one indie bound bestseller. So buy the book. Um, something happened in our town. Go see the play before the end of March. Please, you will not regret it. It will profoundly impact you, okay? It will. All right, listen, uh, I've got <laughs> not a long time to talk about my work, but as an idealist, but let me tell you, last week I went to Hastings, Minnesota, and I spoke to LGBTQ students in the middle school. Uh, students that were in fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth grade, 20 kids at all, two different sessions with them. And I talked with them about what it meant to be queer. That's a good word. It's a word they all use to describe their identity. 
and I talked with them about some of the struggles I had getting to be Ellie Krug and coming out at age uh, 52 as me compared to most of them figuring out who they are uh, even before they get into high school. I told them I was actually quite jealous about, about that. And of course, the question is, how could a 65-year-old transgender woman like me uh, relate uh, to such young people? And one of the ways that I did that, and, and one of the ways I do do that when I speak to younger humans, is we talk about personal mantras. You know, what is a mantra? It's that loop in your head, the thing that you say to yourself every day, maybe a hundred times that you say to yourself. You know, and I asked them what, you know, their mantras were, and, you know, I mean, I heard, well, one of them said, you can do it. That's my mantra, that you can do it. Another one is, I'm on a journey. Another person said, I'm on a journey. And I shared a little bit about my story and my mantras. And for the longest time, my mantra was, how could you ever love yourself more than you love them? Because if you've read my book um, or you've heard me speak before, you know that I had been married to my high school sweetheart, to the love of my life, my soulmate. And we had two daughters and for the longest time, I suppressed my identity and I kept saying the mantra I said to myself is, how could you ever love yourself more than you love them? And eventually my mantra became, you have to live your own life. And I shared this with the kids. I, I mean, I, we talked about what it meant to be human. And it turns out that these kids were smart. They were intuitive. Oh my gosh. Some of them were funny, but they were also hurting. Because I asked, what's it, what's it like to be, you know, queer middle schooler in Hastings? And a lot of them said, it hurts. It's hard. There's a lot of bullying going on. A lot of unaccepting parents. We had some students in there that were afraid to tell their parents about who they were, who the student was. Um, You know, and I don't know if I did any good, okay? I, I, I'd like to hope to think that me showing up, showing that, you know, here's, you can make it, you know, and that you can succeed and be very successful. And by the way, I have great, great privilege. I, I know that, but it was an incredibly inspiring experience for me. I got, I got hugs by several of the students at the end of the second session. And quite unexpectedly, I became very emotional. I mean, I started crying. It was that powerful. That's me as an idealist. If you have, if you're connected to a, a, a gender, a sexuality alliance, a GSA at a school, please offer me up. I'll go and talk to people at no charge. Okay. All right. Well, that's our break. I guess that's it. Um, a big thanks to my producer, Patrick, who had to do some more math again, but he's getting so good at it. And a big thanks to you, my listeners, for tuning in every week and sharing about this, store, this show, about coming onto the podcast, you know, getting the podcast every week. I'm just so very, very grateful for you. And so I'll be back next week. We've got to have another special guest. Oh, my gosh, you will like this. In the meantime, go out and do good in the world. Thanks. Bye.